welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. It uh, seems like I always uh, say this, but it's true, and it speaks to the type of guests I am fortunate to have. And today, you're in for an amazing treat and a very thought-provoking and practical discussion. Today, I have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, uh, MD, a neurology research psychiatrist, uh, psychiatrist uh, at the UCLA School of Medicine and a leader in what is known as self-directed neuroplasticity. Uh, which we'll get into, and especially how that relates to changing or habituating good or bad habits in life, but particularly in tennis, um, because that's, uh, that's what we're at on this podcast. But uh, Dr. Schwartz is one of the world's leading experts in neuroplasticity and the co-founder of NeuroLeadership Field. Uh, his breakthrough work in obsessive-compulsive disorder uh, provided the hard evidence that the mind can control the brain uh, brain's chemistry and its circuitry, and he has lectured extensively to both professional and lay audiences in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. He's a sought-after speaker and a consultant for many organizations. So, uh, Dr. Schwartz, uh, welcome, and uh, thanks so much for joining today. Okay, hi, Steve. It's good, yeah, to talk. I like sports psychology. I'm trying to get like more involved in sports psychology, so Let's do some sports psychology. Oh, good, good. One of the things I'm hoping to do to achieve today is be very practical. And along those lines, trying to use a couple books that I've read uh, that Dr. Schwartz has written um, to guide our conversation today. Um, One of them is The Mind and the Brain, which is Neuroplasticity and the Power of Mental Force. And the other one is You Are Not Your Brain, A Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, uh, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and Taking Control of Your Life. Um, these are particularly the You Are Not Your Brain is uh, highly practical and readable. Um, the other one's more technical. Um, but definitely the whole conversation we're going to have today is uh, the general principles, but then also relating, relating them to tennis, um, which I find uh, there to be a lot of crossover so, uh, Dr. Schwartz, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the books, and particularly uh, You Are Not Your Brain. You Are Not Your Brain, which came out in 2011, um, you know, really is a, a book, you know, for essentially anyone about um, a very common sense, easy to understand, basically easy to understand, I mean, it's certainly not an academic book. I mean, what is the mind and the brain is much closer to being an academic book. I mean, you are not your brain is not an academic book. And 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 yes, there's this four step method that we'll say a little bit about. The four steps are relabel, reframe, refocus, revalue. And my whole thing has been the entire time, including in my academic work, that um, you know, by using those Steps which were designed by me in the early days before mindfulness became popular, right? So I've been doing mindfulness for over 40 years, so before it was popular, right? So I've been trying to do 
mindfulness a long, long time. And, and so all of my work basically was how mindfulness can help a person change their brain. And so you mentioned those self-directed neuroplasticity. I mean, that's, that's what that is. I mean, self-directed neuroplasticity in my hands and what the book You Are Not Your Brain is about is how can you use mindfulness to change your own brain? That's what self-directed neuroplasticity means. How do you change your own brain? Right, and folks, I've read uh, both the books, and um, the You Are Not Your Brain is uh, is very readable, and it's very practical, and that's, that's the part of the issue of this whole uh, podcast today. For example, and I could summarize, and uh, Dr. Schwartz can correct me if I'm wrong, but it says um, the practical implications of what we're talking about here is what he mentions is self-directed neuroplasticity. It weakens the brain circuitry associated with unhealthy habits and strengthens circuits that support healthy actions. And, it, and he gives an excellent example of like if you're walking in a field and, you know, we all do this um, – uh, where, you know, you, you could probably walk around the edge of a field and say, look, here's a vista. I want to look at this one. I want to walk a little further. I want to see this vista. And you look at these different places. Well, eventually, you might even want to just change the path, and you're just going to walk through the grass. And pretty much after a while, you, you create your own little path. And uh, that's much more efficient and much more preferred. And so the steps, uh, in fact, that we're going to go through uh, in this time um, is exactly that is is actually creating a um, is associating if I may say if that's correct um, a, per, a different preferred path a response to certain stimulus is that accurate? Yeah, I mean it's even more than associate. I mean you're actually creating a path in your brain. I mean that you know that is it. I mean I mean you're you're actually sort of creating a path in your brain. That makes it much easier. And obviously, this is directly interfaces with sports psychology. Right. I mean, because that's what you're trying to do. Because, I mean, you want to create the path in your brain. That's what training is about. I right. mean, you know, like, I mean, you know, look, I am not a guy who knows the details of, like, the mechanics of how to serve properly. I, like, I don't, I don't really... I haven't played tennis in like a long, long time. I'm not very good at it, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, I know, but I know that people practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, not only to make the serve but to return the serve and all of that, right? I mean, so if you're up, you know, match point, you know, in a big match, and you know, one guy's serving, the other guy's trying to like, you know, sort of you know, get to serve again, right? I mean, and and that kind of a thing. Especially the guy who's serving is not going to be sitting there going, okay, you want to throw the ball this high and then... Right, you're not going to do any of that. I mean, that's all, like, completely automatic. And the reason why it's completely automatic is because the guy has spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours processing... And when he did that, he's got a path in his brain, and he's basically just going to let that path in the brain take over, and what he's going to be thinking about is every little subtle thing about the expression on the guy's face and which uh, and which direction his eyes are looking, and is he leaning a little bit this way, is he leaning a little bit that way, so we can absolutely fine-tune, like, where he's going to serve this ball so that, you know, we can win. That's, that's, that's the interface right there. 
Yeah, and one of the things, uh, and what I'd like to do, so the general, uh, the gist of today is like maybe talk about the general principles that you're uh, discussing and then at certain points kind of segue into specifically tennis. Um, so, for example, you talk about in You Are Not Your Brain, you talk about numerous terms that carry throughout the book, like, for example, deceptive uh, brain imagery, images or messages, 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 messages. the true right. self, et cetera. Could you maybe just right. explain that um you know, those terms, because I think sure. they're pretty yeah. important. Okay, and then look, as long as you're going there already, I mean, obviously the biggest of those big terms is the wise advocate, which, you know, here's the big, like, lead-in is the title of the next book that is coming out later this year from Columbia University Press. So so this concept of wise advocate, um, you know, encompasses, it's deeply related to true self, which you mentioned, and then deceptive brain messages are kind of the things that get in the way, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, like, what would be an so, example of a deceptive brain? I mean, I I can think of some, but uh, just you know, share with our guests, you know, what the deceptive brain images might be, and how this uh, all works. Uh, like, message, you know, me- deceptive brain messages. Yeah. So, uh, so it's, I mean, I'm sure there are deceptive brain images, but there's not. It's not a term that I'm you sorry, know I yeah, use. Yeah. It might be so good. I mean, I hope that doesn't mean I now have to give you credit when I use that. I mean, as Steve Clark says, this could be a deceptive, a deceptive brain image. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, not, not, <laughs> no, but deceptive brain message, and then deceptive brain image would be in another kind of deceptive brain message. Yeah, what would be an example of that? Yeah, here's a perfect example of that. So a guy who's not a great player is kind of standing there about to, like, make this serve in a clutch situation, and he has a thought running through his mind. You know, I always hit it out of bounds in situations like this. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, don't hit, don't, don't serve it right into the net. Don't serve it right into the net. I mean, probably you don't have to be sitting there with the thought in your mind you know, don't hit it right into the net. I mean, you know, you, you know that. You don't have to be reminding yourself of that. But that's the thing. When you have an insecurity and, you know, you've spent a lot of emotional energy going, why did I hit it into the net? In those pressure situations, that brain message has now, from, from a combination of the repetition and the emotional intensity with which the experience has been felt, it's not wired into your brain. And, uh, in a, and in a pressure situation, when everything starts going on automatic and because, you know, because you kind of lose your concentration, the instant you lose your concentration, everything starts going on automatic. And when things start going on automatic, you know, especially negative, the negative aspects of automatic. Obviously, before, I was just talking about the positive aspects of automatic. But it takes a certain amount of concentration to keep the positive aspects of automatic in place. You know, I mean, so a non-deceptive, you know, automatic is, you know, serving under pressure, right? I mean, you know, that your form is just going to be right because, you know, but, but in terms of deceptive brain messages, which mostly include self-talk, negative self-talk. So deceptive brain messages can, is maybe sometimes more commonly called negative self-talk. You know, it's these things that kind of intrude into your mind under pressure. Like, you know, you're going to hit it out of bounds. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you know, that's a deceptive brain message. I mean, and, and so you have to, like, relabel that. I mean, that, so during practice, you know, you want to be working so that when that happens in a match, you're just so ready to handle it that you don't have to, like, be shook up by having that thought. 
you know, and I could go into a lot more detail about that process. Right, and and, and yeah, we'll uh, for those listening, we'll get into those four steps. And but that's that'd be an example in practice. The problem is when people they don't they aren't mindful. They don't take into these these thoughts, these deceptive brain messages, these thoughts into practice. Because what they do is, and I see this at practice uh, routinely, is. Somebody will miss a shot and they'll say, oh, there I go again. Or, yeah, what else do you expect? And they have these negative thoughts. And all they're doing Absolutely. is they're creating these pathways. That's another example right there. Yeah, they're yep. creating these pathways. So when they're under pressure, it's going to be the exact same response. Instead that's of, it. That's exactly that's yeah. right. So instead of saying, okay, you know, when we you you uh, you notice the, the deceptive brain uh, message right away, and that's where you're talking about mindfulness, you have to say, look, that's that is uh that's just this message it doesn't not does not define me i am not a choke i do not always have to do this that's it that's relabeling yeah, yeah and then you yeah and then the, so you're describing relabeling right there so relabeling right. is the entry is the entry path into mindfulness and then refocusing you know? um so let's just go with that well analogy. we gotta have yeah refocusing is great and but between relabeling and refocusing you have reframing okay so, so reframing what would we do there yeah so okay so when you're reframing you're, you're basically going, okay, that's a false. I am not a choke. That's a deceptive brain message. And then you reframe it with positive, you know, look, I have practiced. I am ready. I can do this. Like, you know, just like do it like you did in practice. Get, you know, like you, you know, you know, you can do this. And then you know, one classic way of using reframing under high pressure situations is having a set of positive affirmations that you can refer yourself back to under those circumstances. You know, positive affirmations. You know, I know I can do this. You know, I've practiced. I'm ready to go. You know, I'm going to put this right, you know, right right where I want it to go is where it's going to go. I'm going to focus on the spot where I want it to go, and that's where it's going to go. Yeah, I think you've mentioned before, uh, or in in the books, you say you do something positive, for example, and it could be something completely um, um, different than what they've done before. Like, for example, let's say somebody has a tendency to get really upset or, like, self-doubt. Well, then maybe right away between points, you go and touch the back fence. You you associate it with a different activity completely. Because if you, if you stay too close to home, like if you stand there and start talking to yourself, you might implode, you know? So I, I know, for example— Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, actually, that's, a pretty, that's pretty radical. I mean, I, are you, I, I'm sure a lot of—you're not even allowed to look all the way back to the back fence. I mean, you, I mean that would be like stalling or something. Oh, I no, mean, between but, points. But I, mean, I know yeah, in principle, but yes, yes, you can have a certain foot position yeah. or a certain anything or just a certain— reminder, you know, yeah, a physical reminder, you know, I mean, you can, you can kind of sort of, you know, you know, touch, you know, touch your racket in a certain way. And, and when you touch your racket in that way, that reminds you, I'm ready to go. I can do this. You know, it's, I'm, it's positive. I've practiced. I'm, I'm ready to go. And yeah, you could associate that with a physical, a subtle physical action that would be a reminder of that reframing. You know, because a reframing corrects. This is what reframing does. Reframing corrects. Here's another one of these psychological terms. The cognitive distortion. So deceptive brain messages always have cognitive distortions in them, which means distortions of fact. You know, that, that, it, that a cognitive distortion means it's a distortion of knowledge so that 
that it's not real knowledge. A cognitive distortion is a false statement that you mistake for knowledge. And, and, and so, and so, and every deceptive brain message has a cognitive distortion in it. And what reframing is basically about is correcting the cognitive distortion with a true statement. And the true statement could be a very positive affirmation. So, you know, so that's how relabel and reframe work together. Because in relabel, you notice, you make a mental note. That's a deceptive brain message. That is false. And then in reframe, you respond to something that's false by correcting it and saying something that's true. Those are the first two steps. And then you use that to refocus. And then what would be and then, our, you, and then in refocusing in our example might be what then? Okay, well, there are so many different kinds of examples, but, but, um, and like I said, if I knew like more about like, you know, the fine points of tennis coaching, it would be easy well, for me to come up with like really sophisticated ones, but I'm not, so I can't. Well, for so, example, you know, in, so, in OCD, for example, you gave the example in the book, the person says, I want to wash my hands. Well, that's not me. My, my hands aren't dirty. I don't need to do that. It's not who, exactly. I, who I am. So then what would be the refocusing? So that's the relabeling and reframing. Yeah, well, now that's from Brainlock. I mean, and that, you know, that is OCD and that is the classic example from whence, you know, everything else kind of came, you know, and that's, you know, that's from the 80s, you know, right. but, 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 um, but in You Are Not Your Brain, we use much more, you know, sort of normal type examples that are not like from having obsessive compulsive disorder. And, and, and those are the kinds that go right into, you know, a sports psychology training point, which is, you know, you know, focus, you know, oh, let's just use a baseball example, you know, because I like just know a lot more about baseball. What can I tell you? Sure. I mean, you know, so, 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 you know, if it's a pitcher, right? I mean, a pitcher will know, okay, curveball with the seams, fastball across the seams. And at a certain point, when he gets a bad thought, he can just say, just feel just feel the seam under your finger. Concentrate on that and then use that as a physical sensation reminder to say, okay, you know, this, you know, focus in, catcher, glove, focus, you know, throw the ball where you're supposed to throw it using the motion that you know you want to throw. And all of that complex thought could happen very, very, very fast if you've practiced enough to just have the physical sensation of the seams under your finger be a reminder of what you're trying to do right now. Now, obviously, there are going to be tennis examples for that. Right. You know, so that, that's refocusing on, on subtle physical sensations that remind you of the task at hand. And then, of course, that parlays dovetails right into focusing on the object, the goal, the task, you know, and then you get in, to use a phrase that is not my favorite, but is very popular, you know, you get in a zone or a certain kind of a zone. And, 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 but it's not just, the zone is not an end in itself. So this gives me a second here to talk about, you know, that word. I mean, that word has become like too important. 
Um, it's important, but it's become too important. I mean, yeah, I mean, you definitely have to be, you know, in some kind of a zone in which, you know, all your physical automatic movements are, like, integrated and you're focusing. But that's the point. It's really about what you're focusing on, the way you're focusing. That's why I say the power is in the focus. I mean, that's what changes the brain. It's about focus of attention. And and to get into the zone, you have to focus your attention in a certain kind of way. And really, the reason why being in the zone is important is, be, is because it's, a, it's about how you're focusing your attention and integrating your, your physical responses with your focus of attention. So it's very, very goal-oriented. And, and, and so that's the power is in the focus is a more useful expression than be in the zone. Right, right. And you mentioned in in uh, in your book, um, You're Not Your Brain, you mentioned about the refocusing being the cornerstone of the therapy. And you say, for example, even in the midst of deceptive brain messages, even in the midst of all these false uh, ideas that pop in there, you want to you know focus your attention away from those things and engage in a behavior that requires us to focus your attention. And that's what you're saying. So let's say, for example, some, somebody is kind of, you know, they've already said, okay, uh, don't double fault. Okay, negative. <laughs> that's a, yeah, exactly. That's a destructive well, don't brain. Don't double fault. Another good example. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a another des- good example. That's a destructive brain message. So okay, now I want to relabel it. I say, you know, that's not who I am. I know I've done this a million times in practice. This is no big deal. It's match point. No big deal. Then I refocus. I say. Just make sure I get up after the ball like I do every day in practice. Be aggressive. That's I'm going to hit a lot of spin on this ball. So my refocus That's is it. despite these things in my, in my mind, in my environment, I'm just focusing on a task. Right, and that raises an extremely good point, and it's a subtle point. And the subtle point is this. Um, it's not necessary. It is not necessary to get all of these thoughts, quote-unquote, out of your mind. Another overused expression, overused expression is clear your mind. Look, it's like, same like I'm going to say about zone. Is clearing your mind good? Of course clearing your mind is good. But the point is, which is really along the lines with what you just said, it's good, but it's not necessary. You can, you can perform at, at just as high a level without completely clearing your mind, just by focusing your attention and not being distracted by the things that your mind should be clear of. And you know what? If you do that regularly, your mind will become clear. So here's the thing. You, you, you serve yourself not so much good, and it's really just a way of making yourself nervous. If you're sitting there saying to yourself, I'm not saying these are deceptive brain messages, but they can be. Make sure your mind is clear. You can't make sure your mind is clear. You know, whether your mind is clear or not is outside of your control. Whether you're in the zone or not is outside of your control. What The one thing that you really do have some more genuine control of is where am I focusing my attention? So you, the power's right. in the focus. I mean, you want, so, you know, if your mind's not clear, like, that's okay. It's okay. But don't let it distract you. In so fact, you're going, okay, deceptive main message. I know what that is. Reframe really fast. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now focus on doing it. Well, in fact, in, in fact, some players can even have a deceptive brain message of this thought here. 
oh man, that thought's still in my head. I must be weak mentally. Well, that's terrible. That's what right. I just said. Yeah. That's terrible. Right. That's, so that's why I think a lot of these yeah. coaching techniques, you know, could use some brushing up. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you're telling somebody to do something that's beyond their capacity to do, you know, and then they and then they walk off the court and, and you go, well, I told you to clear your mind. I mean, that's <laughs> not very good advice. Right. <laughs> you, know, yeah. I mean, just, you know, I told you to serve 120 miles an hour, too. You know, I mean, right. you know, you can do, do what you can do. I mean, you're working up there, you know, it's, it's, you're going up there in small increments. And that's another one of my really important sayings. A powerful mind recognizes small change and appreciates the importance of it. You know, so, you know, all, you know, you, you get great by small steps. Nobody goes from mediocre to great. It does not happen. You know, it, it's all done. It's a process. And, and, and to see that process happen, you have to make small steps and, uh, and recognize them and appreciate their importance and give yourself positive, self-affirming statements about it. You know, I mean, um, gratitude lists, I mean, are great. You know, I mean, appreciate small change. Appreciation is something that really helps a focus of attention because, because you know, it's a lot easier when there's positive you know, energy, you know, and I'll even say positive energy flow or whatever you want. But, I mean, positive thoughts and, and positive self-affirmations help you focus your attention. And negative ones hinder you focusing your attention. That simple statement carries a lot of weight. Yeah. What, then, is the next step? You talk about revaluing. So somebody has okay. dealt, dealt with these things. Now we get to revaluing, right? Um, and it's you know we basically, from what I'm, I've, I've, I've come to understand is you're saying that, uh, you know, you clearly after going through this, you you understand that these sensations or these caused by the deceptive brain messages, they're false and they have little value. So a server out there, is this something that happens after or is it during kind of the process? Let's say you've, you've, you you have this thought, don't double fault. Oh, that's just a deceptive brain message. Don't worry about it. I've done this a million times. I can do this. Now let's refocus and get on here. Does this revaluing happen? Is that the next step before you hit the ball or is that something you no, do no, after no, the process? No, the answer to that is no, yeah. no. The answer to that is no. Okay, so here, so here is the thing. Revalue is a special category. It is. So much so that in some settings, we even say we should call it three steps. And sometimes we get into like debates. Is this a, a setting where we go with three steps or four steps? Here it is. There are three action steps. The three action steps are relabel, reframe, refocus. Those are actions that you take. Now let's talk about revalue. Okay. Revalue is an indication that your brain has changed. So it's something that you more like recognize and sort of be open to and, and sort of support and receive. And, 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 and so revaluing is not something that you do. Revaluing is something that happens. And, and, and when it happens, it shows you that the, the actions that you've been taking with relabeling, reframing, and refocusing are changing your brain. So that 
to use your example, you, you know, don't double fall, don't double fall, don't double fall. Now, guy practicing, I know what that is, you know, all the practice, the low tension matches, all the, I know what that is, that's just a deceptive brain message, that's not true, I'm not going to double fall, I know how to do this. Reframing, okay, just like make sure your, you know, feet are in the right position or whatever coaching techniques you have for doing your serve properly. Refocus, serve, you know, you serve, you're serving. Things are going along, going along. What what happens now after doing relabel, reframe, refocus many times is your whole value of the thought I'm going to double fault changes. Right. And now now the thought I'm going to double fault starts changing from Oh, there's that thought again, too. Oh, that? Who cares? I mean, like, I'm not going to double fault. That's just baloney. I'm not even paying attention to that. It doesn't even bother me. Revalue means when I get the thought, you're going to double fault. It doesn't even bother me because I know what it is. My brain doesn't respond to it the same way. I don't process it the same way. And then in another certain period of time, which is a couple of months, could be a couple of years, actually. I mean, you just never know. Then eventually, with revaluing, you just don't get the thought I'm going to double fault anymore. It just goes away. Right. That'd be like someone saying, you know what, man, you've really improved. I mean, you used to have those thoughts all the time. Yeah, I know they don't even bother me now. Now they just kind of come and go. That's and it. Like, they don't yeah. even bother me yeah. is revalue. Yeah, it's so like in other words, so what it, is reval- revalue means it doesn't even bother me anymore. Right, and it's to me it sounds like it's you're actually you've rehabituated you've 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 walked yeah. that path in the field so much now that all those right. other things that now you just have a little different you know. Uh, yeah, rehabituated yeah. is a deep, deep, deep statement. I mean, I honestly have, I mean, I have a, a a YouTube video on the neuroscience of habit that you know if anybody has any interest in the. It's for lay people. You can understand it. You know, it's, I think it's really good. It's 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 a forty five minute lay, but the neuroscience in it is real. It's the real neuroscience of habit and what it actually means in brain terms to rehabituate. I mean, so I have a forty five minute video on that called the neuroscience of habit, and 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 um, it's easy to find right on on YouTube. And and um, yeah, that's it. You basically have changed. The habit brain. So what does the wise advocate have to do with all of this? A lot. Because, but, and what does the true self have to do with this? Okay, so the true self is what is always in the process of getting developed. You know, we never really become a full true self. I mean, like I was telling, I was telling Steve before we started that I'm kind of hardly, I sort of know who Federer is, but like I'm no, like I don't really deeply, deeply know. I said <laughs> he's like the LeBron James of tennis. Steven said, yeah. So now that's how I know who he is. He's the LeBron James of tennis. So, so, but I mean, even Federer doesn't have a complete true self. And you know what? I bet he'd be the first person to tell you that. But if he thinks about his self identity as a tennis player, compared to himself now and 20 years ago, he's going to go, oh, yeah, well, sure. I mean, there's been a lot of development. That's it. A lot of development, but he's not still his full, final, true self as a tennis player. But what the wise advocate is, is our inner loving guide 
our inner loving God that we can refer to when we ask ourselves the question, is this action that I'm about to do now, is this the way I'm thinking about right now going to make me closer to my true self? So the true self is a process, and, and it's a process that you're always working towards. And the wise advocate is your inner loving guide that you refer to in yourself, asking the question in an inner dialogue. Inner dialogue is very, very important. And that's, and that's what you're going to refer to in those moments of high pressure. You know, that inner dialogue with the wise advocate, and you're asking yourself, you know, the question, is what I'm about to do right now going to make me closer to my true self, or is it going to move me away from my true self? And, and that's why the wise advocate is so important, because, because in, in inner dialogue, consultation with the wise advocate, we're constantly developing our true self. And, and, you know, and you can see this double self example right within that. Obviously, the guy is closer to his true self two years later when he never gets the thought anymore, I'm going to double forth. And when he does, he just laughs and goes, yeah, that used to bother me. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, and it won't come up in a high-pressure situation anymore. Because in a high-pressure situation, when he's concentrating and his focus is good, that thought just isn't going to come up. Yeah, it's interesting because then we're uh, there's always a like you said. I think you mentioned earlier. There's even different parameters, even with this. Per, for example, when that person has a the ability to they've grown and they're uh, you know they've revalued everything. But even now they have different circumstances. For example, I'll just give you an example. The last tournament, you know, Federer is arguably the greatest of all time. Um, and if anybody's not going to worry about double faulting on match point or doing certain shots, it's him. Well, we don't know. There could be other circumstances in his life and goals in his life that oh, no, all of a sudden yeah, he has he has deceptive brain messages yeah. in the middle of that. So even at his level, there are different things that, that creep Absolutely. in. Absolutely. And when you speak to really great players um, or really great performers, you know, they will tell you about that, you know, if you get to really get them, you know, if you know them well enough that, the, that they'll be candid. I mean, yeah, so it's no longer, you know, my problem with the double fault thought, but, you know, little reminders, this, that, something that happened, something that literally happened last night, something that's happening with one of your kids, some, you know, you know, you had a fight with your wife. I mean, you know, little stuff can distract you at those moments. And that's when the practice of focus, 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 focus comes in. So you go, okay. And, and one of the ways that, that that little psychological stressor of the moment that any human being could have might even manifest itself, and that's what's so interesting about our past and the relationship between our past and our present, is, you know, it might even be the thought, Oh, well, you're going to double fall. <laughs> and then the guy's just going to go, oh, God, can you believe I'm thinking that right now? He can might even, like, laugh to himself and go, okay, and now, and now I'm going to focus, you know. So, yeah, there's always, you're, doing, you're still a human being. And, and, and the people who forget that they're still a human being, even among the greatest performers, find out the hard way that they're still a human being. You're always still a human being. Yeah. You know, and, the, and for those... Uh you know, listening in, or maybe someone's listening to a podcast and you're chiming in, um, 
you, uh, I have uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz with me, um, and we're talking about uh, you know habits and uh, particularly how uh, we can um, have self-directed uh, neuroplasticity and actually changing the circuitry of the brain through uh, through processes. And um, so one of the things that I I, I kind of have an analogy. It's like um, you know, there's a video out there, and, and I forget uh, the author, but it talks about how zebras don't have ulcers. You know, it's... Oh, yeah, well, yeah. that guy's name is Sapolsky, and that's a whole other subject matter. <laughs> well, so, okay, no, he's yeah, okay. He's at yeah. Stanford. I mean, you, you know, he must be very, very, very smart. Yeah, he's so, a famous guy from Stanford, right, and so, he is. So the issue is, you know, we take a certain <laughs> stimulus, something that happens in tennis. You know, I, we miss a shot. And it's just a stimulus. It's just an event. And how we deal with that and, and, and all the garbage we carry, carry with things like that uh, vary. And this is even stems over an impersonal life of people, you know, eating, you know, eating for because they're depressed or, you know, just various things. Right. We do. And that's do, it. How, We're not yeah. zebras. Right. I mean, sometimes some of these famous scientists like to think, well, how different are we than zebras anyway? And my answer, which <laughs> doesn't always different. agree with their answer, is potentially very, very, very different. Right. You know, I mean, it is true that at a certain level, yeah, we have a lot in common with other mammals like wonderful. But rather than putting all of the stress on that, you know, I like to put more of the stress on, but we're so, so, so different potentially than any other mammal because we have a wise advocate, which yes. no zebra has. Right, we have yeah, self-consciousness, and we can talk. And Exactly. You have an inner loving guide. You have an inner dialogue. You have, you have an inner resource, but you have to use it. And if you don't, you're just another zebra. Well, yeah, and, and the, the point I was making is related to that is that, you know, in this, this four-step process or three-step um, is that— Yeah, well, three, that, that, that's great, three or four, because the big three are relabel, reframe, refocus. If all you remember is those three, the fourth one takes care of itself, especially right. if, if you do the first three. If you do the first three, the fourth one will happen. Yeah, and and so an analogy is like, for example, there's just even in in life, just like I said, if if people are you know they're bored, they might eat, or if they're certain relationships, they always have a certain habit they go straight to, and the same thing in tennis, you know, if a certain uh, certain event happens or a certain you know people in the crowd make a noise or or whatever, right. we can we can intentionally and mindfully say, look, that is all this is. It's just a stimulus. It's just a, a, a deceptive brain yep. message. It doesn't matter. And then we can go through this process. So it's not just tennis. And it's, I think the key here is a lot of people, um, you know, I call it, you know, there's a lot of uh, people say, well, that's just the way I am. No, the whole idea is you want to be able to uh, be your true self. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way I am never means that's my true self. People never say that's the way I am when they're talking about their true self. Saying that's the way I am, sometimes, okay, look, I don't want to get too spiritual here. Well, I think it's a cop-out when you know, say Steve, that. Yeah. Steve, yeah, I mean, that's it, Steve. Steve said, like, Jeff, like, tone it down on the spiritual stuff. Okay, okay, I'm going <laughs> to no, tone it down right. on it the spiritual matter. stuff. Okay. So, 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 but the, but the thing is, sometimes, sometimes you'll say, that's just what, the way I am. This is now I'm going to say, like, you know, this is sort of what the spoiler alert, you know. <laughs> I mean, if, if, 
if you know, if you really, really, really don't like Christianity, you might want to turn the sound down for the next ten seconds. So, so when you get that, when you get that thought, you know, that's just the way I am. You know, how, here's how's this for a good habit. Say to yourself, Jesus, help me be better. You know, because that's the thing. That might be the way you are, but Jesus, help me be better. Because, because what, what, you know, wise advocate, what the whole wise advocate is about, because calling it a cop-out is almost too much. It's almost like saying, clear your mind. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not every time you say to yourself, that's just how I am, should, should it be like, cop-out, cop-out, right. cop-out. That Correct. can become its own, you know, deceptive right. brain yes. message. Yes. You right. know, but it's always good to say, like, my wise advocate. I mean, when you're saying to yourself, that's how I am, you know, that's the way I am, then that should be like a reminder, okay, like, ask your wise advocate, like, okay, that's the way you are. It's okay. It's good. Another great way people say it, another great way people say it is, God loves you the way he, you are. God loves you so much the way you are that God wants you to be better than you are right now. And that, and that's a really good way to think of it, too. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, we all have, like, where we are now, and that's important. And, you know, you're right, under stress, that's what comes out. I mean, there was a saying, you know, like, Let's just say I am very clearly in the early part of the senior citizen range now. I'm not going to, you know, give anything away, but, you know, let's just say, you know, I, I fully qualify for, you know, Social Security benefits. How's that? So, so um, and, he, and, he, and here it is. I, they, I've, you know, since I've been like in my 30s or 40s or something, I, I've heard the expression, you know, the thing is, when you get older, you don't really change. In fact, when you get older, you're just more the way you always were. Well, I have to tell you, there's more truth in that than, than we'd like there to be, because, because it is kind of true that, that, that you get older and you kind of go like, whatever, like, this is how I am, like, you know, hey, I mean, I'm not changing now. But none of those are good messages, you know? I mean, you know, nobody's so old that they should be saying to themselves, well, I ain't never going to change now, you know? But, you know, on the other hand, you know, if, if you've been a certain way for a long, long time, I mean, there's a certain amount of self-acceptance that you have to have, and that's why the wise advocate, you know, is really important, because, you know, the wise advocate understands. You know, it's like inner loving guide, right? I mean, you know, it's not just some harsh corrective. It's just going, okay, yeah, you're right. I mean, that is how you are, but just, like, pull it in. You can do a little better than that. Like, don't just, don't just capitulate to what you've always been. How's right, that? Right. Don't just capitulate to how you've always been. You know, along you know, it might be, an, it might be an explanation, but it's not an excuse. Yeah. How's that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. Well, along those lines, you know, and, and maybe this isn't something we should get into because um, I'm going to get into some other examples. But you talk about why are habits so hard to break, and you call you call it feeding the monster. And there's, you know, yeah, I, I thought well, it was really well, interesting. Right. They talk about Hebb, yep. Hebb's Law and these other things. But can yep. you, can you dis, uh, discuss the feeding the monster and why it's so hard to change habits? Okay. Okay, yeah. It's easy. There's actually an easy answer to that, which is, you know, very early on. If all you do is like, I don't know why I'm plugging this you know, YouTube because, I mean, I get like nothing from it, right? Zero. I mean, but, you know, in, uh, but like I said, I do have this YouTube called The Neuroscience of Habit. And in the early parts of that, there, I explain there's a part of the brain 
I could say what the actual name is. If you want neuroscience terms in this podcast or just call it the habit center, <laughs> you know, I'll just leave that up to you. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want that. Okay. So I'll just say it really. So there, you know, there's a part of the brain that we actually share with rodents and, 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 and tree shrews, right? I mean, I mean, and, and birds and, and reptiles even. So it, so this habit center, which in general terms of all of those species that I just mentioned, all the way down to reptiles, is, is called the striatum. Um, and we have one too. And ours is not very different than, than that's a true fact. So the reason why habits are hard to change is because habits get embedded in a deep, deep, deep part of the brain that is essentially the same mechanism as it is in a reptile or a bird or a tree shrew, you know, or, you know, right? I mean, and, 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 and you say neuro- here's the key. You say neurons that fire together, wire together, that type of thing. Well, these neurons are so, 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 so wired together that it takes a lot of effort, a lot, lot, lot of effort, mental effort, to just not let them take over. And here's the other big, big point. That part of the brain, the habit center, you know, which is centered in those, that set of structures that we share with these, you know, very, you know, reptiles, right? Birds, right? Um, needless to say, you know, but I'll say it because it's important to remember, it's totally unconscious. So, 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 in fact, this has a lot to do with th- that word, the unconscious. And, 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 and so basically, here's the thing you remember. That's why I was making the joke before. If you don't do anything, you're just another zebra. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. If, 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 if you just don't make any effort and just kind of go along, you know, I mean, you really are in some meaningful way just another animal in the jungle because i mean you have all of these habits they're they're way under the level of conscious awareness that they do operate you like a machine and you know and in sports they can be extremely useful if you train that part of the brain to work for you and not against you but that's the point to get that part of the brain to work for you and not against you takes a lot lot, lot of repetition, a lot, lot, lot of repetition. And that's what training is. And so that's what it takes to rewire that part of the brain so that it takes over under stress. It takes a lot, lot, lot of repetition. Well, that's think, why training is so important. Yeah, but I think the important part there is that it's doable. And in fact, it's... It, it oh, it's, a, it's absolutely doable, but it takes... Yeah. It takes a lot of training. Well, and that's, but I think a lot of people, and I don't know if you mentioned this, uh, I think you do, but it's, and that's where a lot of people, and well, I include myself, we, how much do we really want to change something? So, and that's why it takes this. Well, motivation yeah. is overwhelmingly large. Yeah. So, mindfulness, I mean, I guess, I guess we shouldn't get to the end of this without saying what mindfulness is, because yeah. you want to talk about a term that gets used that people don't know what it means. 
I got to tell you, that might be the most commonly used word in the English language now that gets used when people don't know what it means. And when they hang around with me, that gets rectified (laughs) because I'm pretty careful about that word. But that word has a specific meaning. And this is what the specific meaning is. It's, I actually started using the term wise advocate because the term mindfulness has become close to useless because everybody thinks they know what it means and it's a problem. Wise advocate is sort of an aspect, a very, very important, critical aspect of what mindfulness is. What mindfulness is, is basically having an observer's perspective. You know, and so another term that I also have used that I took from the great uh, economist Adam Smith, the Scottish economist, you know, from who yep. died in, in, in the 1790s, um, yeah, and wrote the book his, the, Wealth yeah. of, the, the Wealth of Nations, wrote uh-huh. the book The Wealth of Nations. Right. So he had a whole theory of ethics that was very important and based on a term that he coined called the impartial spectator, and I'm still very fond of that term. And the impartial spectator, you know, is very much a Western term, so it's not, you know, it's not coming out of an Asian tradition. Not that I have any difficulty with Asian tradition. I mean, I spent a long time participating in that Asian, you know, Buddhist tradition, um, and I have no, you know, I'm happy with it. But, but, but I do like people to know you don't have to go back to Buddhism to have mindfulness, because the impartial spectator is an extremely good description of what mindfulness is. It's, it's, it's really just observing, taking what other people, you know, kind of a clear-minded observer's perspective. So, so another way of putting it is having a third-person perspective on first-person experience. So what that means is first-person experience is I, me, I'm having an experience. Third-person experience is he, she, he or she. You're viewing yourself like a clear-minded person. It's something like reading your own mind. You're looking at yourself as if you are, you know, a he or a she, that you can, like, look inside yourself and see what I or me is thinking and then draw the appropriate conclusions that a loving guide, you know, that's where the wise advocate comes in, that that a loving guide would view what you're thinking and, and give you constructive, helpful, loving advice, you know? So it's, it's like having, you know, a good, good father to, you know, use the, a popular song of the last couple of years from a certain genre that I'm fond of. And, and so it's like, it's like having a good, good father, like, look in and kind of go, yeah, well, yeah, but, you know, think about it this way, think about it that way. And that's the inner dialogue. So that, that is the process of mindfulness. Observing and, and, and relabel comes directly out of that Asian tradition, which I very seriously participated in for over 30 years. And when you make a mental note that is the entry point into being mindful because you're, you're basically taking a third-person perspective on the experience by putting a label on it. 
So it's not like, hey, man, I don't like that guy. It's like anger, anger, anger is anger is existing in the mind right now. Right. I mean, you put a label on it and, and then and then you can sort of go, OK, now what I want to, you know, reframe it. What do I want to do with it? Is it appropriate? Is it inappropriate? What's the best way to express it? What should I do with it? You know, so relabeling is a form of a very recognized technique of mindfulness called making mental notes. And making mental notes is, is a very good technique for having that impartial spectator, third-person perspective on first-person experience. That is what mindfulness is. And the, it, right, and, and then the difficulty... That you're... I also have, oh, this reminds me, that's on a video that is on my website. It is good for me to mention my website, yeah, jeffreymschwartz.com. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-M, for my middle name, Michael, but M, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-M-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. And in the upper right-hand corner of the laptop version, you know, yeah, you can go on your phone, and then you got to scroll down to find it on your phone. But but there's a thing that says top ten videos. I picked those top ten videos, and one of them, a couple of them, actually are little talks on YouTube on mindfulness. That's how to find it on JeffreyMSchwartz.com. That was a genuine plug. That's a relabel right there. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, as we wrap this up, I, I wanted to maybe go over a couple uh, scenarios, and, and and there may not be some uh, some crossover here, but let's say, for example, in tennis, um, you're playing, and uh, you know your tendency, like for example, some players when they practice, they play at one energy level and a certain speed, racket head speed. They're 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 feeling loose and free, and they're swinging. The second they get into competition, they start slowing down. Uh, they're too cautious, etc. Right. And you know, obviously, there's the pressure, and it's different. Uh, what yep. would be an example of maybe some things? I mean, obviously, what could pop into their head is, oh, you know, uh, they're playing not. Okay, the- so that, that's these are great. That's what I need you for, Steve. I mean, like my tennis stuff. I could never have come up with that example. Never. So how would we once you, once you give me that, that example? I can do a lot with that example because that's a great example. Because the first thing that you need to do, because that's a hard, that gets into the whole habit center thing, and 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 the whole the whole issue of context and that competition match circumstance is a different context and you're not going to get an automatic translation of your habits from practice into your match brain. So, so, so now you have to pay attention, you know, literally there's a certain amount of relabeling, but largely that one is just kind of reframing, refocusing in terms of just reminding yourself, you know, like, you know, it is practice, and that, a lot of it is match practice, match practice, match practice. Because I mean, there are things. There's only so much you can learn in practice. Practice. Well, I mean, you also need only a lot so of much, match experience. Yeah, you need a lot so of match much, experience. Right. There's only so much right. pressure you can put on somebody in practice because it's not real. It's, you know, right. It's different. You need a lot of match experience. I mean, that's. I mean, and that's also where coaching really helps because it's very hard to remind yourself of those kinds of subtle points 
you know, very hard. Because, because what you're trying to do is transition brain circuitry that is really unconscious. And, 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 and if, when you're trying to transition your training brain into your match brain, a coach is very, very helpful. You know, because you need a lot of reminders, you know. I mean, you know, rocket speed, rocket speed. I mean, and then when you're training, you know, you kind of give the person the cues and you say, look, in the match, you tend to not maintain that racket speed. You know, so so reminders and and then obviously there's no substitute for a lot of match play. You know, match play is its own form of training, obviously. And, 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 and that's, that is where coaching comes in. I mean, can, is it, it's not too many people could do that all by themselves. You, coaching at a certain point to be really good, coaching is necessary. Actually, this is another whole topic, uh, not related to ours, but it, this is one of my beefs. Uh, for example, most sports have uh, coaching during the event, um, like any, any little league, any soccer, any football, any basketball. But what? in tennis, coaches are not allowed to talk during competition uh, for the younger kids, and that's the problem is you can't you can't remind kids of these things until after the event, and and sometimes that's too late. They well, gotta, I didn't even know that. I yeah. didn't know that. Right, so that's you know you the, mean you're not yeah. allowed to shout from the sideline? <laughs> no, you're not allowed to shout instruction. No, you can't coach. So in college, well, in college, in high school, and particularly, it's a little different. But in college, you can do it, and that's the value there is you're you're constantly trying to teach, and uh, you know, hey, uh, that that's exactly what we did. Yeah, practice. I, I guess, Good that's job. All, you're yeah. right. That's a big discussion. I mean, yeah. I mean, on one level, I understand. Well, Obviously, I'm just guessing, but this is probably a reasonably educated guess. I mean, I guess the rationale for having it that way is they just don't want to make the matches at the lower level so hyper competitive that, you know, the kids are like, you know, getting overwhelmed. You know, I mean, I mean, um, right. I mean, you know, but I would say this, I would simply say this, um, there's, there's got to be levels of competition even in the juniors level where, where that rule is, 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 is held in abeyance. Because, I mean, once you get to a certain, look, there's a certain amount you can do just on having talent and then hard work and then, okay, you talk to the kid afterwards. Obviously, there's a balance. There's a balance. But there's got to be a point within the junior realm where the coach can yell instructions. Uh, well, and here's here's what I do because no, there isn't on an official competition. Once a kid steps on the court, there's no coaching allowed. Now, but what I do is I tell people when I when I teach them a certain we're learning a certain tactic or a certain technical aspect or even an emotional thing, whether it's I, uh, Jim Lear developed this years ago, but PRPR, and I use that for between point mental management, but. The idea is right. if you're learning these things, then I call it friendly fire. You need to have practice. Then you need to play somebody that you're that you're okay with trying something. And it's not about the winning and losing. It's actually about right. learning those things. Then from there, you go to a competitive match. Most people go from practice to a competitive match, and they don't have this comfort zone. Okay, very good. Oh, that's good. That's so, good. But that doesn't exist in competition. It's more of like you go from working with your pro. That's interesting. Yeah, you go working with your pro to a to a, to a match, and nobody can say anything until afterwards. So, I, I, I think the learning curve, that the competition, yeah. the competition in tennis, has become so fierce that they really feel like they have to have this protective shield for the kids. That's, I mean, that's the only way I can interpret that. Yeah, that's that's 
quite but, but that's a, <laughs> that's, it's a little over the top. I mean, at the level of kids who are so good that, you know, I mean, you're telling me if you're 15 or 14 years old, which is getting right up to the edge of where you could be in international competition. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you know that uh, I don't have to tell you that nowadays, 16, 17-year-old, they make it into international competition. Yeah, right? even, in mean, the, even in the pros, they're experimenting with, and they actually do. They've changed it now that uh, the pros can have their coaches come on and and uh, you know uh, talk with them during matches and help them you know with certain things like this. So right, I mean, um, you know. So, but I would say with the with the kids, that you just had a great. That's a great way of doing it. You need an intermediary step between training and match to deal with these issues. And you just—that's what you just said. Yeah, I just call it friendly fire. You know, it's you know because everybody's friendly competitive, fire. but it's like you know you realize right. you know what? I, hey, today I'm just going to work on my serve and volley, and if I lose a few points, who cares? That's not the point. I'm working on my serve and volley. Well, and that's uh, the thing. What you need is use that friendly fire to really train the you know the kid in this. What, what did you? I had never heard that term before. That you know between point mental training you know between you know that between right. point mental training right and that, that's its uh, own thing i mean i love that between point mental training i think that i love that well in tennis the thing is is and this is i have blogs about this and um but the, the issue is is you know tennis is is we talk about it it's like 80 percent mental i mean if you, even time allotted points uh, last maybe 10 seconds at a certain level five to ten seconds but we have 20 five or so seconds between points, well, you spend more of your time kind of with yourself walking around talking right. to yourself. So you might as well, you, you need to learn how to actually control that mental and be able to prepare and, and recover from points. And that's more of the mental aspect. So I think that's highly Absolutely. under trained. I spend, I spend a lot of my time uh, just with people. What no, that's doing a great idea. Points, so. That's a great idea. Well, we're uh, we're uh, okay. unfortunately out of time here. And um, I right. just, I would like to, um, uh, you know, just say thanks so much for uh, for joining us, uh, Dr. Schwartz, and uh, it's been a really enlightening conversation. And I know people are going to have a lot of questions. and And uh, folks, if you do, if you ever want to uh, write a question to me at Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com, I can uh, you know follow up uh, possibly with uh, Dr. Schwartz about a question. Yeah, no, you can follow. Time. That would be the best. That would be the good way to do it. Yeah. Actually, just like that, just yeah. do what Steve just said. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, again, today, um, as you've been listening, we've been talking about um, uh, self-directed neuroplasticity, the practical application of, we talked about relabeling, reframing, refocusing, and revaluing, and how that also can be applied to our habits in tennis. Um, be sure to like or share you know, the podcast, and you can take a look at the website um, as well at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. And also take a look at uh, Dr. Schwartz's books. And again, he's not here to plug them, but uh, take a look at those, uh, The Mind and the Brain, as well as You Are Not Your Brain. And you mentioned and the, website, the website, the website, 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 Jeffrey M. Schwartz. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-M-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com. So I'd like to thank our sponsors, Wilson Racket Sports and Aero Concrete and Asphalt Specialties of Spokane. And, uh, again, I just really appre- appreciate you coming on. Um, I leave uh, everybody with a couple thoughts. Is what you do on the court in your training, your competition, in the energy you have on court and how you play, is it inspiring? When people watch you, are they inspired by your effort and what you put out there? Um, I'll just leave you with that thought. And uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, let her rip. Let it-